0: Thank you very much. Um, Well, I think everybody who's here will agree we've had uh, a really full and very interesting day. And it's very hard to really try to summarize it. So I don't think either of us are going to try to do that. But. In, in indicating the difficulty of summarising it, let me just tell you some of the things that struck me as being touched on by the reminiscences and the discussions of the strike. First of all, we had regional differences which were actually embodied in the first panel and the accents that we all heard. Economic policy, party politics, community in the family, the media, law. So how can anybody not agree that trade unions and strikes are central to the history of modern Britain? In fact, it was clear that at various points, there are still open questions dramatized by the references to the way in which the cabinet papers are currently being released, more will be released later this year. So it's not just history. It's also history which still uh, has not been kind of resolved in terms of the interests involved at the time. I thought one of the things that was very interesting uh, and perhaps central to the whole day and obviously couldn't be resolved because there are very strong differences of opinion about this, were the discussions of strategy around the strike. Should the stri- was it right for the strike to focus on the use of industrial economic muscle or should the, strike, uh, the strikers and the strike leaders have paid more attention to the wider political agenda and the wider political support? That's a, a question that wasn't really it, different. People said different things, but they didn't really have a head-on confrontation, and perhaps just as well. <laughs> I think it's very difficult, from a history and policy point of view. The idea, I suppose, is that we shouldn't just be looking at the past, but that we should also be thinking about what we might learn from the past in the present. And I think it's, it's actually quite difficult to know how you do that for two reasons. I think the first is because of the major decline of the traditional, what we might call, I'm just making this up today, maybe someone else has used the phrase before, the physical production sectors. I heard one of the younger uh, participants in the event, in the lift on the way up and down, saying that if he hadn't looked into the history of this, it would all have sounded like something from another planet. This this kind of world in which physical things are made and produced, and people can have these kinds of industrial actions, just is not recognizable today. So it may be that there aren't any obvious lessons to draw from it. I think the other difficulty in drawing lessons from this history is because of a major shift in the organization of trade unions from organizations which were based on occupations and industries, like coal miners' union to large trade unions which include many different, you know, they've, they've conglomerated, they've, they've become like mini-TUCs. So it's not quite clear, it's not quite clear how a particular occupational or industrial interest or strategy would work through one of the big trade unions today. Having said that, I did want to try to draw one or two historical points out of things that people said. Um, mainly around this this way in which because industrial action in the British coal industry has, in the 20th century, taken the form of really big national strikes, and more rec- not more recently, now it's now in the distant past, at the time we were looking at in today's event, accompanied by mass picketing, there's a lot of people involved, it can make the union look very powerful. But actually, as uh, was pointed out, I think particularly by David Howell in his presentation, Uh, trade unionism in the coal industry was actually quite fragile because of the complexity of the industry. The complexity of coal fields, even particular regions were internally diverse and different from each other in terms of the geology and the culture of the the population. And then, so even forming a regional union was quite difficult. Then imagine how hard it was to form and hold together a national union. So, on on the other hand, What we also heard of from several of the speakers, um, I think particularly, I was particularly struck by it when Ian Lavery was talking, is the importance of community loyalties in the coal industry, which again is very particular, I think, to this industry. And we had several people, including Neil Kinnock, talking about fathers and grandfathers on both sides of the family being coal miners. uh, And then somebody else, I can't quite remember who it was, I think it might have been Ian again, talking about how eventually there were five men in the household on strike. So this is, Uh, a question of uh, incredible close family and community loyalties, but at the same time a national picture which is very fragmented and very diverse. And this makes trade unionism in the coal industry traditionally actually quite hard to organise. So this strike that we've been talking about is, if you like, one of the last examples of the difficulties of trade unionism in the coal industry. The way those difficulties were resolved, traditionally, going back to the 19th century, was by electing members of parliament and pursuing legislative support. So the core basis of trade unionism in the coal industry was the relationship with the government. Um, The first two people who might be described as Labour MPs, Alexander MacDonald and Thomas Burt, elected in the 1870s, were both former working coal miners who represented coal mining constituencies. When the Labour Party split in 1931 over Ramsay MacDonald's imposition of cuts, the basis of what was left as the trade union core of the Labour Party were MPs from the coal fields. So again and again, you can see the centrality of political representation and, and close links with the Labour Party for the success of trade unionism in the coal industry. And th- through that, first of all through the Liberal Party, then through the Labour Party, the coal miners were able to get favourable legislation. In the 1880s, uh, the appointment of people who were called check who became, at the pit level, crucial parts of... of uh, a pit head industrial organisation for the coal miners' union. Then health was also mentioned the importance of health and safety, the pursuit of health and safety legislation. Nationalisation in 1947, and the creation of this sort of more partnership relationship between the, uh, the NUM and the National Coal Board. So the point here I'm trying to make, uh, from, a, from a longer-term historical perspective, is that the coal miners in 1984 being faced with the hostility of the state was not only difficult conjuncturally, that is, there were high levels of coal stocks and a very hostile and well-prepared Thatcher government, it was also very difficult structurally because this was an industry in which trade unionism had always been dependent on favorable relationships with the state. So it was a double double whammy, really. Um, and that, that, So the, the lesson I would like to try to draw out of that, if it has any relevance in a situation in which occupational and industrial groups are merged into much bigger conglomerates, is that when groups of working people are considering their approach to collective bargaining, they need to look not just at the immediate conjunctural situation, but to understand something about the long-term structures of collective bargaining in their own, uh, Occupation. That's it. Thank you. Right. Right. Thank you very much, Alistair. We'll go straight on.